Let's try to understand the world a little better. I'm your host, Timo Wunderlich, and with me is Bradley Sherman, a demographic futurist. I want to dive right into the topic and ask you, there are two major problems addressed currently when it comes to population size. Um, one is overpopulation, and the other seems to be the total opposite, a population collapse. Which one is true? Uh, both can be true, believe it or not. We're experiencing two trends happening at the same time. The first is the collapse of birth rates worldwide, with the lowest birth rates happening in Asia, followed by Europe, and then the United States. But at the same time, our population keeps increasing worldwide. We're at 8 billion people, and we're expected to go upwards of 9 or even 10 billion people. So why is this so? Well, it's happening because birth rates remain high in certain parts of the world, including sub-Saharan Africa. In countries like Niger, birth rates are at seven or just under seven, which means that every woman there is having on average seven babies. So this is pushing up the average size of the global population, despite countries like Germany and the US starting to see our populations plateau, grow very slowly or even decline in some cases. So how dramatic are both of these problems then? Well, depending on how you look at it, they can be quite severe. Obviously, if you're looking at exponential population growth, the challenge is obviously on global resources. Do we have the ability to sustain a population of that size? I think if you look around today, things look quite dire with climate change. But if you think, well, okay, we can shrink the population because there are lower birth rates, that causes other concerns, primarily for nations like ours. What about the economy? If our economies have always been predicated on growth and we start to see population decline, will we see growth in the future or do we need to shift to a new mindset where we think about degrowth and new ways of looking at societal measures for success? So if I understand it correctly, overpopulation is a problem that addresses uh, that is uh, current in the whole world, a, a geo problem, if you will. And uh, um, co population collapse is just for uh, certain states, for certain countries. Yeah, it's for certain states and certain countries, and it typically tracks to development. So those countries that are the most highly developed countries have the lowest birth rates. Uh, this is consistent across the board. So where we see the fastest declines are in countries that didn't have exponential growth post-World War II. Those are primarily the Axis powers, Japan, Germany, and Italy. They didn't have the same boom as most of Western Europe and the United States following the war. So they started their age curve a lot sooner um, than, our, than, than, than the United States, for example. In a country like Japan, they're already experiencing population decline. They've actually been experiencing population decline now since about 2014. This means that they've lost about 3.1 million people from their total population. So the realities are different from place to place. In developing nations, countries that are further from the development um, uh, arc, uh, they still have high birth rates because their societies are more traditional. Um, mm. They don't lack, they don't have the same social protections that you can find in Europe and East Asia and the United States and Canada. They don't quite exist there yet. So that traditional family structure is still very much paramount. How many, um, or I, I guess it's uh, dependent on the country, but how many um, births 
per woman uh, is that the correct term yeah uh, would there need to be um to for stable population so there's a number it's 2.1 babies on average a woman needs to have in order to maintain a stable population there is not a single country in europe that has that number the united states is below that number significantly although some states have met replacement rate including south dakota But once you dip below that number and you don't have positive immigration, the likelihood of the average age of your population going up increases substantially, and the likelihood that your country will face population decline at some point in the future increases substantially. So take the United States, for example. We have about a 1.7, 1.8 birth rate. If it was just Americans, just the people that were here, the United States as a country would start to see a population decline in the coming years. However, the United States has positive immigration still. So we'll continue to grow, albeit at a very slow pace for the coming decades. Um, are there any uh, more developed countries um, who don't have a problem with uh, population collapse? No. There are none? There are none, wow. not, not a single one. And in fact, the faster a country develops, the faster they run into these population problems. So Korea, for example, Korea now has a birth rate of 0.78. That means on average, each woman ha is having less than one baby in Korea. Wow. This is really um, potentially calamitous for their economy. But Korea is, you know, a, a big economy, but when you take a look at a, a monster economy like China, which has similar birth rates now to Korea, they got there in about 30 years. They've turned that birth rate around to such a low level. And it's such an exponential shift in a place like China that they lost population last year. And based on their own official numbers, which they're, you know, They're not perfect with their numbers in China. They lost a population of 850,000 people last year. And to put that in context, that's roughly the size of San Francisco. And when you start losing population, it starts to happen exponentially. So year on year, they will lose more and more people. The first year of Japan's lost, it was a couple thousand people. Today, On average, annually, Japan is losing a population of about 750,000 people. That's roughly the size of Las Vegas, if you want to measure by city size. Wow. How, how can that be? How can there be a, um, a under one, uh, is it fertility rate, under one birth rate? Um, I, I would assume... Isn't it in our human nature to uh, to get children to, um, yeah? Yeah, it is to some degree. But the nature of families and the nature of society really has changed radically over 250 years. In fact, I argue that it's really been this last century when things really turned around. Part of what happened, there are a number of different individual items that happened that contributed to this population change. The first one is that social protections came in place. So families used to operate as both social and economic units. But by the 20th century, it was less needed to have a full family unit with lots of children because 
the government, society would step in for a lot of, for some of those for some of those issues. Another big driving factor uh, is the empowerment of women over the course of the past century or so. Women are more highly educated today. In major cities, they have wage parity or close to wage parity, so they're earning as much, if not more, than their male peers. So this need to get married and have children, while it may be a biological imperative, we might feel like we want to do it, a growing cohort of people are choosing not to. They're actively choosing not to. And it starts early. So it starts early, this shift. People are living at home with family for longer periods of time into their 20s and even their 30s. That means they're delaying things like getting married into their 30s or even their 40s. And when you delay marriage, obviously you're delaying having children too. And the likelihood that you can have multiple children really dwindles the the further you go along. Again, this is actually because of biology. There's only so many people that can have babies past 40. Uh, so what do the other, the less developed countries who have higher birth rates have in common? Um, is, is that the inverse of that? It is the inverse of that. Uh, next to zero social protection, they have um, traditional family structures. Uh, they don't have, you know, really robust um, um, prevention methods for, for having children. Uh, there's no real birth control. Condom use is, 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 is much lower. Uh, and because of that, you you end up having a lot more babies. You're also in a situation where uh, children are more necessary to the economic health of a household. So children start working at a younger age. And you have to remember that it wasn't that long ago in our countries that children worked. You know, my grandfather in 1928 entered the mines in Western Pennsylvania at the age of 14. And that's, that's, that's not that long ago. It's just, just nearly a hundred years ago that, that it was normal for children to go to work. Um, that doesn't quite happen um, that much anymore. Although there are some moves domestically here in the United States um, to allow children to work at younger ages, as young as 14. What are solutions to uh, these problems, especially for um, the more developed countries in which we are currently? Um, you touch upon migration. Um, are there others? Yeah, there, there have been numerous attempts by countries to really turn around this population uh, challenge that we have in front of us. The Approaches that they have taken, though, have had very limited success. Um, people have looked at universal child care as an option. They've offered cash benefits for women to have more children. Um, they've offered job security. So if you leave to have children, take time off for maternity leave or even paternity leave, they, they're okay with you coming back. They put all these protections in place. Nordic countries, France, none of them have really turned around this change. This change really seems to be a structural one. There are glimmers of hope here and there for those people who are pushing for individuals, women in particular, having more children. We've seen small towns that have turned this around. Um, there's no special sauce, though, yet 
for what to do to modify behaviors to fix population change. The areas that have tried have done things like the cash benefit that I've already suggested, but they've also really considered that the community is essentially part of the family. So community resources align with family needs. There's greater support across the board. It really um, harkens back to the way communities used to be before significant social protections were in place, where everyone kind of took a role in the health and well-being of the community, including the rearing of children. And in those places, they have seen the birth rates come up. And that offers some hope for the future, especially in countries like Japan, where there there are some of these examples where they don't have immigration. Um, There's next to zero immigration in Japan. So if they want to fix their, you know, quote unquote, population problem, well, they have to figure out how to produce population domestically. And they're putting quite a bit of resources into figuring this question out. Can you give an example for um, countries in which the community um, side worked out or where they... Yeah, well, consistently, um, Japan has been leading on this. Uh, specifically, a couple of different communities across the country have been, um, I think, really a, a point of interest for demographers in particular, but also for social scientists on how they're re-engineering um, their local communities to, to address this challenge. Um, but even within, a, you know, let's say advanced economies uh, like ours in the United States, um, we find that the highest birth rates tend to be in communities that are on the whole more traditional. And that doesn't require social intervention. That is just a traditional community. And you'll find these in communities that have higher degrees of faith, um, meaning that there's a greater degree of religiosity um, in a traditional structure of community where uh, there are some support networks within the church primarily that help support uh, the idea of having a family. We also find that birth rates are incredibly high um, in indigenous communities. Um, those communities of Native Americans um, on tribal lands, you'll find higher than average birth rates. But again, this goes back to a traditional social structure, which is really new against the backdrop of human history. Um, the way we live now, believe it or not, is contrary to history. And contrary to a very long history, too, you know, we've been walking this planet for 300,000 years. And for about 10,000 years, we've been living in some form of civilization. We reversed the tradition of society basically in 100 years. So what happens when you reverse the tradition of society? Well, obviously, there are um, unintended consequences, And a decline in birth rates is one of those unintended consequences. Uh, I have a question to uh, about the Indo uh, native um, folks. Um, couldn't you say, or isn't there an argument to be made that um, those are um, 
people living in maybe inside a more developed country, but um, they're living a less developed yes. lifestyle or in a less Absolutely. developed area. Absolutely. You know, the, the tribal lands across the country, not only are they living a more traditional way of life, uh, they're also living uh, largely without electricity or even plumbing in some cases. So, a, and, and, and there aren't the same degrees of educational attainment as there are on, let's say, you know, the big cities. There just isn't the same level of attainment there. Um, they also tend to be poorer uh, than the country on average. So, yeah, they are a different place. They are a nation within a nation. Um, but I point to them because even within these, you know, let's say highly developed countries, there are still pockets that remain traditional. Um, despite the modernity that surrounds them. But is then the high birth rates are the, uh, is the reason for that? Um, the more, the, the greater community ex experience, I would call it, or is there's it, a greater um, community experience of working? Yeah, there's greater community experience. Um, you know, like Hillary Clinton said, it takes a village to raise a child. They still have that traditional structure, but it also comes with a lot of negatives too. Okay. So there's a high mortality rate among children uh, on tribal lands. That's mm. the way society used to be too. Um, children don't die the way they used to. You know, a hundred years ago, a child born in this country had a one in two chance of making it to adulthood. That was pretty much the norm for most of human history. You had a 50-50 chance of becoming an adult. That doesn't exist anymore. You know, survival rates for infants and children into adulthood is, you know, 90, 95% uh, worldwide in developed countries. So the chances of a child dying are, are rare now. Uh, you just don't hear about them anymore. So we've really we've really changed that too. So we we have to accept that there are good things and bad things that come with demographic change. The that the bad thing, if we if we want to classify it that, I would say the reality right now is that births are really low, and the question remains: so what? What if birth rates are really low? Is that really a bad thing? If mm. you listen to somebody like Elon Musk, he'll say, this is the end of the civilized world, the fact that we can't have babies. I don't buy into that. You know, just 100 years ago, the planet was occupied by 2 billion people. We grew exponentially over the 20th century to 8 billion people. We will continue to grow for the next coming decades like I said, tapping out around nine or 10 billion people worldwide, and then we stop growing. But the question for countries, especially countries like ours, is do we need more people? And I think that's a philosophical question, but it's also an economic one. Because all of our models, all of our models for success revolve around one thing, and that's GDP. Is GDP growing is the economy growing? Are we seeing more people having more resources, more money in particular? That's been the way we measure success. But in a period where populations are plateauing or even declining, is success purely measured from a social level by economics? And I don't know if it necessarily is. 
So hmm. there are two things that are happening right now that I think are, are really quite compelling. You have some nations, um, uh, the Nordic countries are looking at this, Finland in particular, New Zealand is also looking at this well. Basically, non-economic measures that can assess the health and well-being of a nation. And they range from the light ones, are people happy, to the heavy ones, like are people housed? Do people have access to clean water, clean air? Um, are we reaching new levels of educational attainment? How are the arts and culture surviving? Um, that's one way of looking at the world in a new lens. There is, in fact, one economist out of Japan now that is talking about degrowth communism. And communism is, of course, a scary word to most people in the West. But this idea that we can think about a period of decline as one of opportunity if we come together as a society and focus on maybe non-economic goals or less on economics and more on social welfare and well-being, then we could actually really improve social cohesion at the end of the day. 20 years ago, a theory like this, an idea like this wouldn't have carried any water. We would have laughed at it. But today, there is some truth to it that we have to rethink our norms in order to really move forward in this new period, because we've been trying now for nearly half a century to improve birth rates. It hasn't happened. So did I get that right? Um, is GDP growth directly linked with population growth? It's a big part of it. Because the more people you have in your country, the more people you have purchasing, the more people you have working, the more people you have contributing to the tax base, more, 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 more. So all of that contributes to economic growth. Now, obviously, growth is not restricted to a nation. Economic growth is not restricted to one nation. So Japan's economy grew at a rate of 6%, I think, in the last quarter yet their population is declining. Well, why is it growing still? Exports. It's growing mm. because of exports. So there are still markets that are growing worldwide. Germany, of course, is a great exporter of goods. The United States is phenomenal at this. There are markets that we can go into as, as businesses, as countries, that can help our economy continue to grow. The concern is local demand, national demand, and that's effect on the overall health of the national economy, which will decline, obviously, if we don't have a growing population. You said earlier, um, there's a cap um, toward po world population. Uh, I think you mentioned uh, it was at nine billion. Um, About nine or 10 billion. Um, okay, there, how we haven't fully agreed on, on when this will happen or the total number um, that we'll top out at. Okay, but how does it, how do you predict these things, I would say? Like, and how reliable are those predictions? Uh, they're pretty good. Um, I think that the models that um, the UN uses are a little outdated. Uh, the UN predicts the global population will stop by 2086, 2085, 2086. 
And so we'll hit that upper number, you know, just about 10 billion or a few hundred million more than that. There is growing thinking, though, that our models are somewhat outdated. And the Club of Rome, for example, um, a group of economists, demographers, um, social scientists are predicting that global population growth could actually start a lot sooner, perhaps as the perhaps as early as the 2050s. Well, guess what? That means that both you and I are going to be alive for that. Um, There's less a chance that we're going to be alive for 2086, but the likelihood of being alive for 2050s is, is, I mean, that's just a few, 20 years away, uh, 30 years away from now. So yeah, will we see that? Probably. Um, But what does it all mean? We don't know. We've, We've never experienced... Um, a worldwide population decline since the Black Death, since the plague that ravaged Europe in the Middle Ages. We've never experienced it before. And that was a single event that happened over a number of years that we eventually recovered from. This is an event that's been happening. It's a structural force that's been occurring now for, frankly, uh, over two centuries And it's really sped up in the past century. It is tied intrinsically to industrialization, modernization, and the creation of social welfare. So let's say we want to turn that around. We want to get those numbers up again. Well, we could deindustrialize. We could go back to living an agrarian lifestyle. Um, We could take away things like birth control. You can no longer have that. Um, there are things that we could do, but they seem really draconian and backwards. Like, are we willing to give up modernity in order to grow the population again? My answer is no. If there's a cap to human population, um, wherever that might be, is, is there still an overpopulation problem? Well, it depends on who you ask. I think if you ask uh, an environmentalist, they would say that we've been overpopulated for years. Mm. I think if you would ask um, a zoologist, they would say the same thing. There are too many humans on the planet against other species. I think if you would ask an infectious disease expert, um, do you think there are too many people here? They would say, absolutely. And they would point to the fact that we keep pushing into areas that were occupied by other creatures that are carrying diseases that then can transmit eventually to humans. COVID is a perfect example of that, where humans interacted with native species and a disease, and a disease jumped from the native species to a, to a person causing a worldwide pandemic. So yeah, I think you could ask thousands of people are we too many people now? And you'd get a resounding yes. You would get a resounding yes. But if you asked a real estate developer, they would say, no, we've got plenty of land. We can build more houses. If you asked the head of any corporation, they would say, absolutely not. We can always have more consumers. We can always Mm. have more consumers. If you ask a social scientist, um, particularly a, a demographer or somebody who deals in the political sciences, they might say, well, it depends. Having more people means it's harder to govern. There are lots of different perspectives on this. 
I think from my standing, we have more than enough people now. The question is, do we get to a period of stable growth or even stable degrowth versus this exponential growth rate that we had in the 20th century, which was really a disruptive period of time, and get to a more even playing field for population growth? And here's why I say this. For most of human history, like I said, we've been around for 300,000 years, 10,000 of which have been in civilization. Our populations have grown very slowly, very slowly. And I challenge anyone listening to this today to just take a look at the population growth map of the world from about 10,000 years until today. And it really is a shocking image to see because right around 1900, you see this trend line that is kind of stable, just shoot through the roof, shoot through the roof. And that signals disruption. Now, will our degrowth be as disruptive as our exponential growth? Hard to say, hard to say. But, uh, and I probably won't be around for it, and I'm not quite sure you will either, but it is something to consider. It is something to ponder for future generations. You mentioned the Black Death and now um, uh, also the uh, crazy growth in population. What are the catalysts, the biggest catalysts in um, historic catalysts uh, for population um, change? There have been four uh, that have really driven us to the point that we're at today. And each one of them was an industrial revolution. The first industrial revolution in the 1760s, 1770s, 1780s made the city really the center of life. We started to see people move from the fields and into the factories. That was the first kind of inkling of change. The second big change happened Uh, just after the Civil War in this country in the 1870s, the 1880s, the 1890s, where we had just this period of discovery and growth. Um, people moved in mass to cities. There were, there were mass migrations worldwide. Birth rates started to dip. In the 20th century, it was really the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s, the dawn of the information age, where we started to see communications improve. We saw really radical changes in scientific development. We started to see a lot more children surviving into adulthood, in large part because some of the investments we made during that second revolution, which were things like clean water, um, sanitation. Uh, I say all the time, you know, one of our big credits for longevity is actually the garbage man. And we give him no credit for our survival rate because every week somebody picks up that can And that can goes to a place and we keep our cities sanitary. That really helped survival rates. Um, but in the 20, 21st century, we are in this period of information revolution, what is commonly referred to as the fourth industrial revolution. And this is just speeding up things at a pace that is just really shocking. Um, each one of these revolutions, the birth rate has taken us a harder dip downward. Information is a big driver. Education is a big driver. <clears throat> Economics are a big driver. You know, there are fewer people now 
uh, both in real numbers and percentage that live um, with food insecurity today than ever before. There are fewer people today that live with with uh, water insecurity, clean water insecurity than ever before. That drives change. That drives change that really relates directly to our populations. Do you know approximately um, how many countries um, or as a percentage uh, in the world are um, still in the first or in the second or third or fourth um, phase um, of the industrial revolution? I would say that most countries, there's a, so there's an exponential rate of acceptance. So of, of industrialization. So we think about Germany and the US, for example, we went very slowly in our industrialization periods, kind of lurching from one to another. Well, in places that we would consider developing just 20 years ago, they're developed now. Um, they have all the attributes of a developed nation. They have industry, they have clean water, they have education. It might not be as great as in the West, but it's improving. Um, but the growth of these things, the change in these countries is exponential. So take China, for example. China is the second largest economy in the world. It grew exponentially as an industrial power. It did so over let's be generous, a 50-year period. So where it took our countries 250 years to get to this, China did it in 50 years. And that rapid change happening in such a condensed period of time, you know, 20% of the time, is causing disruption in that nation to such a degree. People flooded from the fields to the factories, moved away from the rural areas to the urban ones, completely upended the family structure overnight. Mm. And the result is people aren't getting married at the same rates. People are staying single for longer periods of time, and they're just having fewer babies. They are just having fewer babies. So there is an exponential factor to this that happens when countries modernize very quickly. So this is why that, you know, I brought up earlier why the modeling may be off. I don't think anyone would have anticipated 35 years ago, 40 years ago, that China's population would be in decline today. In fact, mm. most writing during the 1970s in particular suggested that our population was out of control, running out of control. It was never going to stop. We were going to grow until we couldn't feed ourselves anymore. It was called The Population Bomb. There's a book on the subject. That changed, though, um, when China modernized. So the question for me, and I think for, for most of us now, is how quickly will places like Sub-Saharan Africa modernize? And if they modernize at the same pace as China, which is a huge TBD, it's a huge TBD, if they modernize at the same rate of China, Will they see the same adjustment to their populations over the same period of time? Will they go in a place like Niger from seven babies per woman per, you know, in their lifetime down to less than one? I think that's entirely possible if they follow the same trajectory. So if there's such a huge change in thinking uh, since, I, I don't know what you said, uh, 1970 when the population bomb came out. Mm -hmm. um, um, and At that point, everybody thought um, 
that overpopulate or that um, massive population would be the problem now. Um, now there are different opinions on that. Um, how likely is it that the ideas, the opinions we have right now could be changing in the next 20 years as well and turn out to be it, wrong? It, it could change. Um, the data doesn't suggest that it will. And we have to go off of the data we have. Doing strategic foresight, which is a big core of, of, of my book, uh, a big core of my business, requires us to do a couple of different things. The first is, you know, get that data that we have right here, right now, and analyze it. The second piece that we have is taking a look at trends, um, emerging trends primarily, what's happening in tech, what's happening in tastes, what's happening in culture. The third piece, though, is looking back at history and trying to find relevant points in time throughout our recorded past that might signal what the future could be. We don't have a good reference point for what we're in now. So could it change? Yes. Is it likely? No. There would have to be something very disruptive to turn things around. And let's say that we do turn things around. Let's just make that argument that tomorrow, every woman in Germany wakes up and says, I'm going to have 2.1 children. Every woman in America wakes up and says, I'm going to have 2.1 children. Let's just, let's agree to that argument for one second now. It does nothing to impact one of the biggest challenges that we're facing right now today, the labor market for about 16 to 20 years. And why is that? Because it takes about 16 to 20 years on average to raise an adult that can mm. actually go to work and be a productive member of society. And I would argue in the United States, it's probably closer to 25 or 30 years that it takes to raise a fully functioning adult that's in the workplace, actually contributing to the overall health, um, economic health of the nation. So let's say we turn it around tomorrow. Let's say we get back on track and have po po uh, population replacing itself at, a, at an acceptable rate. We still have to wait an entire generation for those kids to become adults. So what we're dealing with right now is actually the more important issue. It's not 2086. It's not the 2050s. For our countries right now is this 20-year period, assuming birth rates increase, But it's really this 20-year period and how we get through this period of transition where a whole large group of people are retiring, maybe needing care eventually, and a lot fewer people around to work, to contribute to the economy than in previous years. When you're analyzing the data you, you gathered, um, what indicators are you mainly focused on? Well, the two primary indicators that, that are the easiest to analyze and, and the easiest ones for just about anyone to uh, look at are birth rates and death rates. They tell us a lot. Um, if we look historically, though, at uh, the age brackets, they come together to form what is more commonly known as a population pyramid. And population pyramids typically looked just like the pyramids of Giza, uh, a very large base of young people and a very small tippy top of older people. Well, mm -hmm. guess what? 
because we improved infant mortality in the 20th century, because the, because of that, we now have a lot of old people, far more old people than we've ever had before. In fact, I think it's next year in this country, we hit a point called peak 65, meaning that at that point, there will be more people over the age of 65 alive than ever before and perhaps ever again. But what's interesting about this, when you take a look at these pyramids, is they don't look like pyramids anymore. They look more kind of like uh, a busty woman or like a squared off um, uh, uh, tri- uh, a squared off triangle or a squared off rectangle, rather, because the populations are almost even now. So boomers roughly are the same size as Gen X. Gen X is roughly the same size as millennials. Millennials are roughly the size, same size as Gen, Gen, uh, Gen Z, rather. So that has really changed the dynamics in society too. And we haven't had to deal with this reality before where there are just so many older adults. And engaging them in productive working lives that go past traditional retirement years is one of the ways that we can grow our economy, economies, I should say, without necessarily having more babies. So if I'm a 65 year old man and I'm still in good health and I'm still got, you know, all of my cognitive abilities, I still have this great opportunity to contribute and I can contribute for like another five, 10, 15, maybe even 20 years, depending on the job. We ask people though, or suggest to people in large part because of the social welfare system and the state pension that they should leave work around 65. If we're able just to capture a fraction of those folks in work for longer periods of time, we actually can stimulate the economy. And that's something that more and more countries are looking to do right now. So are those the two, um, those are the main two indicators you're looking at? Are you looking at others as well? Yeah, of course, there's labor market participation. Um, that is a huge for, indicator. Sorry to interrupt you, but for example, if I were to give you a country, let's say... Yep. Bhutan or something, you, a country you don't know much about. And um, I would ask you, how, how would you predict uh, its, its future when, it's comes to, when it comes to demographics? Um, how would you first look at that country and what, what things would you look at? Um, how would you think about that total process? So much like climate change, we don't look at individual years and say, oh, it was a hot year or a cold year. We actually take data historic data, aligning it up with current data. And what we can find from that, you know, we've been collecting population data here for 200 and well, since the, since the start of the country, since 1789, we've been collecting data on populations ever since then. Germany is similar in its, in its ability to collect data. Not all countries have this. Many countries collect data, but not at the same rate and certainly not for the same periods of time. So it's harder to get a longer term outlook on what their populations look like. However, and regardless, if we took a look at a country like Bhutan, the first thing I'd want to take a look at are the birth rates in the country for as far back as I can go. The second thing I want to take a look at are the survival rates of children 
into adulthood as long as I can go. The third thing I would take a look at is the average life expectancy as far as I can go. And the fourth thing I would look at is the actual age breakdown by within those categories to see how many people are living past certain upper limits. So like average life expectancy in Germany right now, I believe is 79 or 80 years old. You know, five years ago, it would have been less than that. 10 years ago, less than that. 20 years ago, less than that. That doesn't express everything though. We need to get a better sense of how many people are living past that to see where it signals the Mm. overall health of the nation. So there are a lot of different pieces that we put together in the puzzle to get a very clear picture of where things are going. And from there, we can make some predictions. Of course, there are also, you know, things that we would, that, that are not necessarily data driven that we look at too. things that might signal um, economic health, things that might cycle, uh, signal, you know, whether people are going to have children at all. Um, one, one example is pet ownership. Um, people have pets as companions. Uh, so and then you don't have children in some cases, that is the case. Uh, uh the purchase of luxury goods. Um, if people are buying designer bags, they're not necessarily putting money away for having children. Um, if we look at things like people eating out, um, people with families don't eat out as much as single people do. So that signals that, that there might be a a dip in the birth rate. Um, there are just so many different things that you can look at both in the hard data, but also in the trends that can suggest where a country might go. Now let's be clear. Nothing is perfect here and you, no one has ever really perfectly predicted the future. But what we can do is we can offer, you know, essentially a band of the possible from the least possible to the most possible or from the least, least possible, least likely to the, to the highest likelihood. And it kind of falls in between that, um, what, the, what the reality will be based on what we know today. Obviously, the closer we get to an event horizon, the more likely we're going to be right. So, you know, when COVID happened, um, my company reached out to our clients in January of 2020 and said, we have concerns because data suggests that this actually could be a pandemic. And people said, what's happened? What do you mean a pandemic? Uh, We have heard of no pandemic. We've heard of no disease. And we had enough data points that we felt confident that an outbreak would happen here in the United States within three months time. And lo and behold, it happened in March. The closer you are to an event horizon, especially if you have data and not just hard data, mind you, observational data, historic trends. If you have those pieces, you can make really strong, um, if we're being fancy, we call them predictions. If we're being real, they're really educated guesses on what patterns may be. But I'll tell you something, and this gets us a little bit away from the overall population discussion in terms of demographics, but our reference point for the pandemic was the 1918 pandemic. And believe Mm -hmm. it or not, we were able to take a look at 
local behaviors in this country that that happened in 1918 and 1919. And believe it or not, they were near photocopies of what happened in 2020 and 2021, including certain regions of the country avoiding public health measures. So, so, you know, there was an American author called Mark Twain, and I reference this quote from Mark Twain all the time. He said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And when you're able to look at the world through that lens, like we don't know each other well, but even if we were best friends, I couldn't predict what you're going to do two days from now. I couldn't Mm -hmm. predict what you're going to do, you know, maybe two hours from now. But when you take a look at groups of people, populations are predictive. And we do tend to oscillate on the same behaviors over and over again. It's just one of humanity's little quirks. So before we go into our last segment, um, where we, where I have some rapid fire questions for you, um, I wanted to, again, I, I know you kind of mentioned already, but I want again ask you, were there really no civilizations um, that had problems with population decline? There are no civilizations that we know of that had birth rate decline. Essentially, they stopped reproducing. There is no civilization on record where that has occurred. We have had civilizations, though, that have been wiped off the face of the planet. These were largely driven by war or famine, perhaps some um, societal collapse, uh, but nothing nothing has indicated birth rate collapse before. Nothing. And if there had been, I would like to believe that there will be a record of the birth rate collapse. For those countries, that those, those civilizations that kind of disappeared seemingly overnight, we can make guesses, but they, they happen rather quickly. Birth rate collapse happens relatively slowly. I I just want to believe that there would be some record out there that signaled, hey, people just stopped having kids. But there <laughs> isn't. But there isn't. So this is novel. This is a new period for us. This is something we've never experienced before. And it does challenge not just policymakers and our, and our leaders to think about how do you either get the birth rate back up or work with less uh, over time. But it requires, you know, everyday people to think about what does the future hold for us and what can I contribute to a better world? With that, we go in uh, into the rapid fire question segment, as I just mentioned. Um, so what I will do is I will uh, ask a question. I will go in, uh, I will go. I won't go any deeper into it, and um, I hope you can answer it within two or three sentences. You got it. That would be great. Okay. What are the most important metrics for your work? The most important metrics for my work are human behavior. Obviously, hard data contributes significantly too, but human behavior is my favorite one to watch. 
if you had, do you have a message or if you had a poster that would be on Times Square and everybody would see it, what do you, would you write on it? Change is here, yet hope persists. Do you have a favorite quote? History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Do you have a favorite joke? I don't. Um, a controversial opinion. I believe what nobody else does. That demographics are our destiny. They are certainly driving our future, but that doesn't mean we still can't be in control. What would you have liked to know earlier with 20, let's say? I got into this in my 20s. What would I have liked to know more? I think I wish I had a better understanding of the world back then. I saw this as somewhat isolated and just something that was happening in America. But the reality is this is happening everywhere, across Europe, across Asia, into Latin America, and just beginning to happen now in Africa. So if I had that global understanding, perhaps a few years earlier, I could have gotten ahead of the game. What's your newest, biggest insight? If economies really want to grow, there are two things that they need to consider. The first is the inclusion of older adults. The second is the inclusion of people that have disabilities. By bringing these people in, our economies will grow uh, for the coming decades. How would you spend $1 billion to make the world a better place? That's not a lot of money to save the world, but I think I'd put it towards climate now because that seems to be the most pressing issue for us. Likely carbon capture or moving people to electric cars or getting, kind of, getting rid of cars altogether. <laughs> um. What do you think of Peter Zion? Peter Zion is a sage, albeit a hyperbolic sage. His predictions tend to be right. And if they're not perfectly right, because no one can perfectly predict the future, they certainly offer a window into what the possibilities are, both positive and negative. What's the biggest problem in your area currently? Lack of understanding. There are few people that few really truly grasp demographic change. There are even fewer people that understand that it impacts their daily life. This is the same challenge that climate change activists went through 30 or 40 years ago. It's only now that people are accepting climate change because they're starting to feel it every day. Demographic change will be faster um, and we'll start feeling the pain points at different parts of the world at different rates, but it will become central to the, to the zeitgeist, central to the national conversations 
I know this because it's already central to the conversations in Japan, in Germany, and Italy, the first countries to really hit this challenging demographic period. And that's it. Thank you very much. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Um, do you have something? Um, do you still have something to say, or was there something I should have asked you that I shouldn't, uh, that I didn't? I mean, this was a great interview. Uh, I think you covered most everything. You know, there. P Peter is really, really interesting, and he, I, P he always comes up in conversation because he's been doing this at least in the public sphere for a bit longer than me. Um. Peter and I are almost completely aligned on what's happening in China now. And I think that for, for folks, China is one of those issues that isn't going away. And China's population collapse, if we want to call it that, is going to continue at a pretty rapid pace. And what we're witnessing in China is the worst of the worst of demographic change because they did not pay attention to the change decades ago. They've overbuilt their real estate market, specifically in housing, um, far more than they should have. Um, they have something like 65 million excess homes. To put that in perspective, they could house every citizen of France tomorrow in an empty house. Um, they've not offered their uh, citizens pathways to investment that are outside of real estate. Mm. So all of these people have money tied up in the real estate sector that is now collapsing. We're looking at a historic loss of wealth in China and no social protections. And it doesn't look like the government's going to step in. What keeps me up at night about China is the fact that China and Russia have similar governments in terms of an autocratic leader with very centralized power. And just like Russia invaded Ukraine under the pretenses of, of dismantling an authoritarian government in Ukraine, there's nothing to say that, that China won't do the same thing into um, perhaps the Kashmir region or the Taiwan, uh, Taiwan rather, or even Russian territory because they want to expand their empire. Generally, though, you know, liberal democracies, we actually get more peaceful during this demographic transition. We're less likely to go to war, but Russia bucked that trend, and um, I think China might too. Uh, what internal solutions has China tried uh, to combat that demographic change? Uh, well, the first thing they did was throw out the, the one-child policy. You know, the one-child policy um, really kind of sped up their demographic decline. They were already, um, their populations were already adjusting downward. The birth rates were already adjusting downward. But they decided to inject like speed into the system. And the birth rate really just collapsed. They, they, they took that away a few years ago. Um, the one child only policy, but guess what? No one's having babies. Like we don't see a reversal of birth rate decline in many places. Once it starts, that is something we haven't seen yet. And we haven't really seen outside of a few 
you know, a few towns and cities here and there turn it around. We haven't really seen it turned around at a national level. They've offered money. They've offered, you know, housing. Like they're offering all these incentives. Um, it ain't working. It just isn't working. And yeah, it's going to be a challenge for China. But China's demographics are disruptive by nature. Remember, 1950 in China, their population was about 500 million people. In less than 100 years, their population nearly tripled to 1.4 billion people. Over the coming decades, they'll lose about 100 to 200 million people. And by the end of this century, if predictions hold true, now we're looking at, you know, 80 years out here. If predictions hold true, China will be near the size it was in the 1950s. Wow. Their population will be roughly half the size it is today. So, yeah, like you, we might look at these challenges in Europe and the United States as like insurmountable. Look at China. Like, look at China. Like, that is crazy what is going on there. It is absolutely crazy. And for as much prosperity as their exponential growth brought, there is equal risk for calamity and peril during their population collapse. And I just don't know if they're ahead of it. Um, they have an, an, an atrociously high unemployment rate for young people now. 16 to 24 is it's 21% at least unemployment. That is insane. That is just insane. At the same time, they haven't modified their social welfare system, which isn't particularly great. They haven't modified this system at all. So if you're a woman in the industrial sector, at the age of 50, you can retire. 50. How, and their life expectancy now, mind you, their life expectancy now is better or at the life expectancy of Europe. So you're telling me, yeah, 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 it's about 80, 81. So you're telling me that somebody can retire at 50 and live for another 30 years without work. The reality is, though, life expectancy increases every year you're alive. Okay? So my, my life expectancy when I was born was, I think, 72, mm. I think. My life expectancy now is 80. Mm. Just based on statistics. So a Chinese woman at 50, her likelihood of living to like 85, 90 is actually pretty high. So we're actually looking at like 35 years, 40 years of unemployment. They will, wow. it's just, they will be work, they will be retired longer than they actually worked. <laughs> so, That's I mean, just think, about, just think about it from a practical perspective here, right? Just think of it from a practical perspective here. The state needs money to function. They're taking out taxes when they take these people out of the economy. The economy needs consumers. When people stop working, they're not as active consumers. So I don't know how they turn this around. I don't know how they turn this around. I don't know how they do it quickly. It is problematic. At the same point, and Peter nails this all the time, 
people are trying to get out of there as fast as they can. There's incredible outward migration from China too. We don't have that issue. We don't have that issue in Europe. Europeans like Europe. Americans like America. If we're moving anywhere, we're moving to the other side of the Atlantic. We're not going that far. We're, we're staying kind of within our kind of general co- Atlantic confines. Um, and yes, there has been an uptick of Americans moving to Europe, and but there's always been Europeans coming here. Where do Chinese go? Well, they go throughout Southeast Asia. They come to, to, to Europe. They come to the United States. They're not staying in China. They're trying to get out. And you don't hear oh. about anyone, well, very rarely hear about people say, I have a dream of moving to China. You don't find it. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. exist. There's no Chinese dream. There's an American dream. There's a European dream. You're not going to find many people saying, I've got a Chinese dream. That, thank you very much that you still, that that you, um, that you took the time to also answer that. That, that was a big <laughs> insight. That was really good. Thank you. Yeah. Well, actually, just... actually, that to, for that, uh, that came another question for me. Um, that I should have asked because I didn't ask about India. Um, oh, India is fascinating. Is there same demographic collapse? Yeah, it's different. different. India is different. Uh, it's really hard to look at India as one country. It's like a dozen countries uh, in kind of one. I mean, it's like the United States in the sense that it's a really big country, but there's actually, at least here, 50 different mini countries. Europe, okay. we look at one thing, but there's... You know, 25, 30, what, countries within Europe uh, today. So uh, India is like that. There are dozen, I forget how many um, there are, but they're very different. Each one is very different from the other. India is going to continue to grow. India is going to continue to grow by 100 or 200 million people over the next 20 or 30 years. But, and this is really important, what their birth rate actually dropped below replacement rate in last year. So even though they have like a two birth rate, it still on average went down below replacement rate. So India is going to have the same challenges as everyone else. Why is India going to continue to grow if their birth rate is below replacement rate? This is always the big question. How does that happen? If they aren't having enough babies to replace the population, how does the population continue to grow? The population continues to grow because of survival rates. So children are surviving to adulthood. Adults are living longer. That's how the population continues to grow. Get it? That's how it continues to grow. It's not people moving to India. It's the survival rate of the population continues to increase. But aren't there a lot of people moving out of India as well? Absolutely. The Indian diaspora is massive. Absolutely massive. But the question remains, will the diaspora continue to flow out of India Or with greater domestic prosperity, will it stay? Or will the diaspora leave coming to a place like the United States or Germany and not take up citizenship? Will they remain Indians, albeit Indians working in another country or living in another country? There's a gentleman running for uh, president of the United States right now. His name is Vivek Ravaswamy. And Mm -hmm. Vivek 
is a young guy, is a tech entrepreneur. His mother chose to get American citizenship. He was born here. He's American. His father opted out from taking American citizenship. His father is still Indian. So even though he lives here, he's still Indian. So there are there are some kind of outlying things that that I'm sure that if I I really dug into the model, really dug into India, would give a much bigger picture, better picture. But we can say with high, high, high degrees of certainty that the country will continue to grow for the coming decades by at least 100, if not 200 million people or more. So where China loses 100 to 200 million people, India gains 100 to 200 million people. Interesting. And for context, you know, that's a third to two thirds the size of the United States that they're expected to grow. That's a lot of people. That's a lot yeah. of people. <laughs> they they will be the largest country in the history of the world. Wow. By population. It's remarkable. Wow. It's absolutely remarkable. And time will tell if the Indian government can continue to manage a population of that size. We'll see. Well, thank you very much, Bradley. Um, it was great. This was also okay. The after actually the show should have been over after the um, after the rapid fire questions, but these these two answers you were it. you can work <laughs> it around. I'm sure in edits. No, but, no, no. Uh, <laughs> that's no problem. I, I just wanted to say that uh, <laughs> that was great. Thank you very much. Good. Okay, I will end the call here. Um, if you want to know more about the topic, uh, get his book Super Age. And if there's um, anything, uh, where can people reach you? Yeah, it's uh, easiest to find me at thesuperage.com. You can also uh, find me on LinkedIn where I keep up with my socials there. I'm terrible with X. I just have never been able to figure it out to my liking. Uh, and of course, you can always reach out to me via email at bradley at thesuperage.com. Thank you very much, Bradley. Thank you.